Now when they, and that would include the apostles and Jesus, they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you as soon as you have entered it and you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat, loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and they loosened it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you, what are you doing loosening the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So most of you are very familiar with this. This is the Palm Sunday. It's an incredible text for a couple of reasons, and not the least of which is that it's the one day on planet Earth where Jesus was giving proper praise and received proper praise as the Messiah, the one fulfilling the promises made to Abraham and Isaac Jacob and particularly David. It really is an amazing thing. I mean, Jesus, the king of the universe, presenting himself to the king as king of the Jews, and he's on the colt of the donkey. It's a triumphant entry. And I, when I taught this not so long ago on, in Luke on Saturday night, I talked about how many people have entered Jerusalem as conquering kings, conquerors, like Titus in the Roman Legion in 70 AD, or General Allenby, when the, when the British came in and conquered the Turks in World War I, he came in on the horse the whole nine yards. And, you know, Jerusalem has been conquered so many times and rebuilt so many times. If you go to Israel and you go to Jerusalem, there's like at least 15 layers to the city, the history of Jerusalem, and how many people conquered it. But Jesus is the only king who's the true king of Jerusalem because he's the prince of peace and he's, he's, he's the king of Salem. Jerusalem means peace. And he is the one who's the rightfully going to rule over the planet from Jerusalem. So it's just so special when you really think about it. Like this is Jesus getting the worship and the praise. We're singing earlier, praise the Lord in the song. And we praise him. He's worthy to be praised. And we talk about this when this comes up. But when we sing 20 to 30 minutes a night, when we gather, we sing about the Lord and we sing to the Lord. We sing about the Lord's faithfulness. In expression, in expressing ourselves in song, and we sing to the Lord. Obviously, we know some songs are about the Lord that we're singing about His faithfulness, and then some songs are directly toward the Lord and we're singing to the Lord. And He alone is worthy to be praised. Think of all the people get praised and honored in politics, in sports, in entertainment. And people walk in the room and they think it's the biggest deal because this person's in the room. When you meet someone famous, you know, I've had Bill Clinton walk by me one time when he was the president of the United States when I lived in Vermont. They come and go. As I'm putting together different song sets to, of, of Christian music to play for the kids when we do youth events or whatever and different things, like I found a song that I really like by Zoe Grace, and it just says over and over, praise him, praise him, praise him. And, and you think about, like, that's really the core of when we come to the Lord, and you can really tell when someone's God's working in their life because they want to praise the Lord. That's the difference between relationship and religion is that religion will often do religious things. But as we grow in our faith, we become more relational. And the time of worship and time of praise takes on a greater meaning where we we clear our mind and we're really focusing on the Lord. And we're giving him praise and adoration. 
And the world doesn't understand that. And I mentioned this not so long ago, but I remember a situation where I knew of someone where they were at church with a non-believer, their father, and they raised their hands in worship to the Lord, and the father made them put their hands down. It offended them that their daughter would be raising her hands in praise and worship to Jesus, and it offended the father. But that's what pleases the Lord. I remember in 1983 going to the North Shore Christian Fellowship there at Waimea Bay. It was a Calvary Chapel affiliate. And I I wasn't born again. And I believe in God, but I wasn't born again. And I went to that service. And what I always remember when I came as an outdoor service there at Waimea Bay on the North Shore of Oahu. And what I always remember is that there's a lot of people standing, raising their hands. I'd never been to church service where I saw people standing, raising their hands to the Lord. And I was like, wow, what's up with that? I stood, I stand, sit, kneel when they tell me to. And, you know, I, I go to a Catholic Mass to this day. I don't need anyone to tell me when to stand, sit, and kneel. I, I, it's in me, you know. It's muscle memory. And, and I say that, you know, uh, not in disrespect at all. I just, this is how you do it. But to see people spontaneously standing worshiping the Lord is the first time. It's such a visual uh, picture for me of praising the Lord. And like, well, why would, like, why would they do that? And then for the next four years, when I was unwilling to yield my life to the Lord, but I knew about the Lord, and I said I was a Christian and all these things, but I always sat in the back row, the different evangelical churches I went to. I went to an EV Free. I went to a Calvary Chapel. I went to a community church, and it's always in the back row. And then when I truly got serious with the Lord in 1987 and was excited about the Lord, I always tell the story where Mickey Yarbrough, my friend, was in the front row at this Calvary Chapel in Encinitas, and I was so nervous to go to church on my own. My sister was supposed to meet me there, and her car broke down on, on the freeway going to Encinitas that day. So I'm like, either I go in by myself to this church service right now, or I don't. And this is a key moment in my life. So I went in there, and Mickey Yard was in the front row. And I remember I'd never been in the front row. And I went to the front. He said, hey, Joey, and he'd go in the front row. And I remember the first song, he starts raising his hands in praise. I'm like, well, I guess you could do that. And I always remember, like, the first time I raised my hands in worship, I was like, just, I was like, it was like, yeah, I did. It was a true story. I was like, and, you know, Mickey's kind of got like, like this, you know, and it's a pretty charismatic Calvary Chapel, too, you know. And, and, and I was like, you know, and I remember by the end of the song, I was like, I can do this. But that comes from the heart. It's such so beautiful about this story. For one day on planet Earth, when Jesus Christ, the one who fulfills all those wonderful promises, came into Jerusalem on that one day before he was crucified, it was a prelude. It was a, it was a preview of coming attractions. It was a shadow of things to come, but the substance is the second coming when he comes in glory and splits the Mount of Olives and the whole world will see him coming in glory. It's a choice of praise. It's a choice of praise when he came in. And if you recall the religious leaders from the other accounts of the gospels, they told him, hey, the kids were praising him. Kids were praising him. And they told him, hey, tell those kids to stop praising you. And he says, I tell you this day, if they stop, the rocks would cry out and praise me. So we praise him. The whole universe praise him. Everything's, we see this in Colossians on Saturday night. All things are made by, by him and for him, and they're held together and sustained in him. He's the center of the universe, and he's worthy of our praise. So we praise him. Hosanna, blessed is he, verse 9, who comes in the name of the Lord. He represents the Father fully, and everything, God is good and God is light. And he, he's worthy of the praise. And blessed is the kingdom of our father, David. He brings the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here with us right now. We are the kingdom of God as the church. And again, we're told in Colossians that he's the preeminent one in the church. He's the head, we're the body. And we praise him. We praise his name. And we don't praise him in a religious sense. We praise him in a relationship sense. And sometimes we feel like singing. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just need to meditate upon the words that are being sang or whatever when we're that type of worship here at Worship Generation. Sometimes we just feel a little more 
And we want to praise him for we know his faithfulness to us during the week. But whether we praise him or not, he's worthy of our praise. And blessed is the kingdom of our father David. And that kingdom is the kingdom of God. And that's the kingdom that's going to be established on earth. So we don't get moved by the things of passing kingdoms of men because the kingdom of God's coming. And when Jesus comes in his second coming, he's going to establish the kingdom. This is a prelude and a type of that in his first coming. Hosanna in the highest. So I just love this day because Jesus was publicly worshipped as the Messiah of Israel, the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. On this one day, and in the way of humility coming on the colt of the donkey, as in contrast to when he comes in his glory, where there is no choice for the humanity, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats, and he's going to establish the kingdom when he splits the Mount of Olives according to Old Testament prophecy. So I would just say this, praise him. Praise, praise the Lord. We, we praise him. He's worthy of our praise. And whatever we might go through in our lives, he is worthy of our praise because everything he's doing is working together for good and he is worthy of our praise. We pick it up in verse 12. Now the next day when they had come out of Bethany, he was hungry and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem and then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares throughout the temple. And then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because of all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. Again, the other Gospels have this record as well. A few of them do. The Synoptic Gospels. Where he cleanses the temple. Now, he cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry. In John's Gospel, when he started his ministry, a presentation to the nation of Israel, he went in the temple and did this. So it happened at the beginning of his, his book ends his ministry. He cleansed the temple once at the start, and he cleansed it again in, in the uh, end of his ministry, obviously here in this text. On the way there, we read this account about the fig leaves, and there is a connection between the temple and the fig leaves, because we know the fig leaves represent the nation of Israel here. And he came to his own, and his own did not receive him, as we read in the New Testament. But as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. But he came to his own, and his own Israel did not receive him. And they are like the fig tree. They got leaves. It looks like something's going on, but there's no fruit. There is no fruit. There was no faith. They rejected him. And it has all this religion. It has a temple. They're selling uh, turtle doves and whatnot for, the, for sacrifices and all these things. But it's, it's the racket of religion. And this fig tree really represents what the faith of Abraham 2,000 years before as the father of the Jews he was a great man of faith. And historically, there was great men and women of faith throughout the Old Testament. We know that. But this is what it degenerated into. Organized religion. It's like fig trees. It looks like there's something going on. But when a closer examination, there is no fruit. And that's what religion's like. Religion's like that, where you do religious things. And outwardly, it looks like there's something there for God. But there's just no fruit, that the faith is not there. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And our faith is in Jesus, that he's over the universe and he's over our lives and, he, and we can trust him with what he's doing. These guys rejected Jesus. 
And so they could do all the church religion stuff they want to do, but it's just it's it's fig trees with no with no figs. The the modern equivalent, of course, would be churches that reject the gospel. Because there's lots of churches that don't believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's a lots of churches that believe all kinds of strange things, but they have Jesus' name out front. They're like the fig trees. They're just it's leaves, but the fruit's not there. The fruit is in the, the gospel, in personally believing in the gospel. The fruit is in God working in us for his good pleasure and through us to the benefit of others. The fruit is is in the ch- local churches where he's the preeminent one and he rules over everything and he's Lord of all. He's guiding the leadership. His word is the standard. The whole counsel of God, as Paul referred to it, it to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. And that's that's the fruit. And I praise the Lord that this is a fruitful church. It's been a very fruitful church. I don't see us as being a religious church or a religious congregation. I see us very much, a lot of people here that love the Lord, and we're just seeking to serve the Lord and be faithful. And I believe if Jesus looks at us, there's, there's plenty of fruit. We're not just leaves, but there's lots of people that do church that are fig leaves. It's just something they do. You build a religion of your own conjuring, concoction, and you just do things the way you want to do, but... Jesus said, you know, it's interesting when you think about Jesus where, where he talks about eternity and what it's like to stand before him. There's not a whole lot that you see revealed apart from him saying, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. So Jesus, in giving insight to standing before him in the end of the age, he talks about people who had the name and had all the, the, the fig leaves, if you will, but not the fruit. We want to make sure we have the fruit. And the fruit is just, it's the relationship. It's growing in that relationship with the Lord in every experience. Because, again, Romans eight twenty eight talks about that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And different things come into our lives in different ways for different purposes at different times in different seasons of our lives. And the real issue is growing and learning through those experiences. And, you know, of course, we prayed for me beginning of service here or beginning of the study about my whole thing with my back and my, my body and all that I'm going through, the physical infirmities. But, again, it's, it's working for, I mean, I don't like being in physical pain. No one does, especially excruciating pain for prolonged periods of time. But if you're learning things, like, then that's what you want to do. And I can tell you one thing, for me personally, I've gained a much greater sense of empathy, again, for people who have dealt with severe pain. I've thought a lot about Steve Mays, who, of course, is with the Lord now, Pastor Steve Mays from South Bay. But he had back issues that just... I always was empathetic as I'd hear about his back issues because I've always had moderate back issues but not severe. And I just think like, gosh, you know, like his back was so bad that literally that's had part to do with Steve Mays dying uh, when he died a couple years ago. And it's given me empathy. There are people in this church that have gone through very serious physical infirmities and ongoing still going on right now. And I can tell you what I'm, I'm like, there's people I want to call and just say, man, I am very empathetic to your situation like I shared earlier because you just, you just realize like, man, like, how do, you, how do you do it? Like, how do you deal with this pain? I don't know. Like, I support, we, personally, I give money to different uh, military veterans groups, wounded warriors, stuff like that. And I just think, like, there's guys out there, you know, that have lost limbs. And I think of the pain they deal with, and they, they did it for our country, and these types of sacrifices. And, like, I suddenly just, I don't know, it's just broadened my whole vision of, like, physical suffering that people suffer through and how uh, it may never get better, but there's still a purpose in them being alive and what God's doing. Like Fred's dad was in a lot of pain before he passed. And I would go visit him in the hospital and tell him like, hey, Fred, God's not done. There's, there's things he's working in you. And he's like, I just want to go be with Jesus. If he was still alive, I'd go back to Fred and go, hey, you know what? I feel your pain a little more than I felt it before. Does that make sense? 
when bad things happen to good people or whatever, like when things don't work out the way you want, like those things are the things that give you depth of character that produce fruit where you have uh, growth in Christ and become more like Christ. We don't want to just be leaves. We want to have fruit. And we don't ever want our relationship with Christ to be reduced to, like, I go to church, I act this way, I do this. It, it, it's, it's, it's not robotic, it's, it's relational. And the fig leaves really speak about that. And that relationship is really based upon faith that Jesus Christ is in control and he's got a good plan with everything he's doing in our life. Whether it's trials or tribulation, tragedies or physical pain or anything, like just disappointment with things not going the way you want them to. Now, he said in verse 17, moving on to driving out the temple, the, the guys in the temple, he said, it, it, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. And so again, that's a little more expansion of what he was considering to be the, the, the leaves because they made it a den of thieves. It was, it was the business of religion and it's about money and money changing and taking advantage of people who had a sincere faith and the, the common people who heard Jesus gladly, who were astonished at his teachings that we just read. The temple was meant to be a place where people connected with the Lord on a personal level through faith. A house of prayer implies relationship. That's what church, that's what the Old Testament gathering at the temple is about. That's what the church is all about. When you look at the early church in Jerusalem there in the book of Acts, like they were just excited and they met daily house to house in the temple and they're filled with joy and it was about the Lord. They were rejoicing in the Lord and it's relationship. Again, these guys reduced it to the business of religion. Don't ever want to do that in our personal life and we certainly want to do that in the ministry. The church is meant to be a house of prayer and that's why every time we gather here, we start our service with prayer. We got Bobby praying for us, right? We got you guys praying for me tonight. What do we say at the end of our service? We're available for prayer at the doors, up front. We just, we want to, we want to pray. Like I always say, you got any questions about the Bible study? We want to answer those. You got prayer needs. We want to pray for you. And uh, this is, this is a place where it's about relationship. And we want this to be a house of prayer. And by the way, when the men got together last month on that first Monday of the month, which was April 1st, it was great to have all those men come out for prayer. That was a real blessing. I believe that was a a great foundation. And many of you are here tonight that I saw there. Now we read on verse 20. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remember, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Let's focus on the the real positive element to start with in this passage. Have faith in God. Isn't that the whole purpose of life? Have faith in God. We're we're created for God. We're created to know God through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Have faith in God is the whole purpose of life. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Paul the Apostle said, we walk by faith. So it's interesting to me, even as Jesus on the last couple days of his earthly ministry with the apostles, and who else but Peter go like, oh, wow, look at the tree. Jesus doesn't even address the tree. He just says, have faith in God. It's a good word for a man that's going to lead the church for the next three, gen- three decades, right? 
withered fig tree, which Jesus cursed, all the apostles, Peter looks at it and goes, whoa. And Jesus looks at him and says, have faith in God. Again, it's not religion, it's relationship. All that God's doing in our lives, whether it's prosperity or tribulation, blessed be your name. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Whatever he's doing is to stir our faith in him. And as we move toward eternity and the journey of life, we want our faith to, in God to increase because we can look back as his faithfulness over our life. That was one really cool thing about ministering to Fred Sr. down the stretch of his life up there the road here off the 605, that he definitely had a very firm faith in God, and his faith was very strong and very established in a difficult time with excruciating pain, two terminal illnesses, a botched major surgery, and other things that had happened, a forced pacemaker. All these things happened to him in the last, like, nine months of his life. It's unbelievable. To rehab, back to the emergency room, back to the hospital. It just, it was incredible what he went through, but, like, his faith in God was very strong, and his confidence to go to heaven and be with the Lord was very strong. And that's how we want to be. Because, again, if you minister to elderly people, you'll see people who, who never had faith in God, and, they, and quite often they get farther in their unbelief and the rejection of God down the stretch than opposite. You'd like to see people come to the Lord in the latter years. Statistics show it's less likely. The highest, for lack of a better term, conversion rate of people coming up to Christ is children and the junior high years. Any, you know, whether it's Harvest Crusades or Billy Graham Evangelistic Association or Luis Palos, whatever, like anything will tell you that's it. And it's, the older you get, the less likely you'll come to faith because you've chosen to live a life devoid of faith in God. So you got to come to a place where you admit you're willing to admit it was all wrong, which is very humbling. That's what has to happen for an elderly person who's never lived for the Lord. They got to humble themselves and realize, wow. And they got to, they got to have that work of the Holy Spirit that they realize they're perishing and they want to give their life to Christ. But you find this, and many of you know this, that you, when you're given over, you're kind of given over, and so you begin to implode on yourself. So in your unbelief and in your sin and all that rejection, you become that person. And apart from grace coming and penetrating that, and your willingness to respond to grace, it, it just doesn't happen. It's, it's very rare. But what's really cool is when you, that's why sometimes when you do convalescent ministry, you visit people, and they're so vile and vulgar. You're like, gosh, how can you be that vile? You're about to step into eternity. Like, how can you just, but it's just, it, it, they can't help themselves because we're human beings, and he gives us over if that's what we want to do. But in a favorable sense, you see people who are very much filled with faith in God as they're moving toward eternity, and they're still growing in the Lord. I've talked about this when I visit my dad at sunrise in La Costa, assisted living where he's at. There's that one guy, and every time he sees me from afar, he just says, praise the Lord for he's worthy to be praised. And it's like he's moving in the fast lane uh, or the carpool lane. That guy is so ready for eternity. I could tell when I spoke to him last time, his daughter was a little bit uncomfortable about him talking about praising the Lord. But he's like, hey, whatever. You know, he's like, me and him are having a conversation about the glory to come. And it's just really cool. Have faith in God. Isn't that what the daily existence is for? To have faith in God. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's all faith. Faith to be forgiven. Faith to be provided for. Faith to be protected. Deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom. Faith in the kingdom that's coming. In the Lord's prayer, it's all there. It's all faith in God. It's really good when the church is filled, any church, local church, is filled with people whose faith truly is in the Lord, not in men or things that we can manufacture 
or conjure up in ourselves in the name of ministry, that our faith is in God for whatever God is doing. And he'll strip us of self-confidence to put us into a place where we have faith in God. And then there's that promise, that hyperbole statement, I say to whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. That's a, I mean, it's like, this is Jesus. If it was like, if it was just a motivational speaker saying, hey, you say this, you'd be like, okay, whatever, you know, like sell more books or make more money in the stock market. But this is Jesus. These are red letters. And Jesus is saying, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he asks, says. This is interesting because, of course, we know when we pray, there's three responses. The Lord can say yes, and you see your prayers answered immediately. He can say no. For example, you put an offer on a house. Oh, God, we really want this house. And then you don't, they don't accept your offer. That's a no, right? Or you apply to colleges and you didn't get the college you wanted. That's a no, right? I mean, that's just how that works sometimes. Yes can be immediate. You got the job. Praise the Lord. No, you didn't get the house. Okay, praise the Lord because that's not the house he has for us. That's where faith comes in. And then there's like the weight element. Sometimes when you pray for things, it's like, it's like a weight. Like you got job apps out there. You just got different things where you're like, you're waiting on the Lord. So it's a yes, no, or a wait. But it is important that we understand that this promise that Jesus gave, as Scripture interprets Scripture, of course, is subject to the Father's will. In 1 John, we're told that we know that we, if we ask according to his will, we have the petitions that we have asked. 1 John tells us that in chapter 5. So the critical thought process of Scripture interpreting Scripture is, who would be so foolish to think that we know better than what God knows for our lives? We don't. Like me, I want deliverance from physical pain, but maybe God wants to just grind it out a little more because there's a little more he wants to grind out of me through physical pain. Paul said to the Philippians, that famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What precedes that verse is interesting because that was my favorite verse as an athlete. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? That's the athletic verse for every Christian athlete. Tim Tebow, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, like, But really that verse is related to where it says, Paul said, I've learned... In to be completely devoid of anything, to be in want, and to be full. And in this I've learned that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So it's not like Paul woke up and said, man, I just hope I could be broke and not eat today. But he had that experience. And he's, he, Paul had the experience of sitting at a banquet table and eating really nice. And he had the experience of being hungry and not eating anything at all. Paul had the experience of having a nice room in a hotel and, and being spending a night in the deep. Can you imagine spending a night in the deep? Like, you read over that in 2 Corinthians, like, he spent a night in the deep. You know how terrifying the ocean is? A night in the deep? That's, that's, there's a South African surfer about four years ago fell off a boat in the Medawas when everyone was partying, and he fell off the boat, and the boat went on without him. He treaded water for like nine hours, and the boat came back and got him. He was not going down, but he spent a night in the deep. That's terrifying. It's working together for good, and, and, and God teaches us things. So the yes teaches us things. The no teaches us things. The wait teaches us things. And the smartest prayer we have is, truly, thy will be done. Now, there's a lot of ministries that would say that's a foolish prayer, and they're foolish ministries. Because if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. Can we build on the Lord's Prayer? Nonetheless, not my will, but thy will be done. It's the smartest prayer. It's the smartest prayer. And again, in my own personal testimony... Before I gave my life to Christ, truly, I followed like some of the prosperity teachings. I actually ordered cassette tapes from a prosperity ministry in Southern California because I wanted to be the world champion and they were saying what I wanted to hear. So I claimed being a world champion. I claimed the big house on the hill in Vista. I claimed the BMW. I claimed all these things. It's a true story. It's kind of embarrassing, but 
I didn't get anything except, of course, you know, I had the attempted suicide later on. I'm in a straight jacket. So that's what claiming got me, you know, like county mental health and all that kind of stuff. And then when I got saved, I heard Chuck on the radio and I ordered Chuck tapes. And I remember I got my first batch of Word for Today Chuck tapes, cassette tapes, 1987. And I had these tapes and those tapes. I'm like, these are the tapes I need to listen to and those are the ones I need to throw away. Okay. And then as I was growing in the spring of 87, is that in when I read, I was reading through the first book of Psalms, and Psalm, you know, 1820 says, as for God, the will of the Lord is perfect. And I was like, wow, like, here I am in like, oh, I, I claim this and I claim that. And the Lord's like, my will is perfect. Trust in my will. And I learned, I learned at early on when I truly gave my life to Christ that I can trust his will, that not my will, but thy will be done. And that's what we all need to learn that. That's why at the end of the Lord's Prayer, so for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So the whole prayer of the Lord's Prayer starts out, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. So we, we pray, we pray in faith, and we pray, you know, we're held accountable for not doubting and does not doubt he or she who does not doubt. We read that there in verse 23. We're held accountable for faith and not doubting. And I've said this many times, if God doesn't do something great that we're praying about or whatever, I at least want to believe that he could have. And if he chooses not to, that's his business. That's why I say with this whole next generation, I am believing and expecting God to do great things in the next generation. And that's contrary to what a lot of people think about the next generation. But I, I, I don't want to limit God. Who am I? Like some baby boomer, like we own, the, we own the, on the market on revival. Like we only get a revival during the Jesus movement. Like the, our gen, gen, gen X, Gen Y, they don't, you know. You know what I'm saying? Like if you just think it through, like we want to believe God for great things for our, our children and our children's children. And even our children's children's children. If the Lord hasn't come back by the year 2110, you know, like we, we, would, we would want to believe that God could do a greater work. We don't let society di- dictate our, our doubts about what God can do or can't do. Post-millennial this or post-modernism, post this, post that. Listen, man, Jesus Christ is the Lord. And if we believe he can move mountains, then let's believe him for moving mountains and, and believe God for great things. And if he chooses to do it, great. But if he doesn't, let it not be because we didn't believe he could. We're not about doom and gloom. We're about filling water pots and believing him, filling water pots to the brim and believing him for miracles in, in our generation, in our lives, and the ones that come. So we'll take his yes, and if we line up, yes, great. We'll take his no because Father knows best, and if he says wait, then we just got to wait because those who wait on the Lord will not grow weary. They'll mount up with wings of eagle, and they, they, they shall not faint or falter. So we can wait on the Lord if that's what he's saying to do. Verse 24, whatever you ask, though, believe that you receive it. And, you know, sometimes you need to believe to receive a no. <laughs> Lord, I'm believing in yes, and I'm believing in no, and I'm believing in wait. I believe that you're on the throne, and you know what's best. And we're going to trust you. We're going to trust you with what you have. But verse 25 and 26 is the bonus text on this passage for sure. And we get this on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew's Gospel when he gives the Lord's Prayer about forgive us our debts we forgive our debtors. And then he gives the bonus in Matthew's account. It's not in Luke's account, but in Matthew's it is, that if you do not forgive others, you will not be forgiven. That's the bonus on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew's Gospel and the Sermon on the Mount. And here, after all this, you know, just teaching Peter and the apostles this whole context about believing God for great prayer and great things, he, he, he adds on this very important clause. It's like an addendum. It's like a contract, you know, between the, the, the church and Jesus, the, the head of the church. It's like an addendum. And whatever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. 
If we have bitterness or malice or unforgiveness in our hearts, that will definitely get us a big no, or at the least a wait. When we were in Vermont and we moved up there and we were going through some challenging trials, the Lord praying about stuff, there was a there was a, a breakthrough with the Lord put on my heart. Like I was like, God, I can't do it. I just I'm overwhelmed by everything. And he's like, you know, you never forgave those people for what happened in Virginia. And he literally put the ministry on hold in Vermont. Well, he, he allowed me to go through a really hard time emotionally and mentally to a, a breaking place where he pointed out to me I had not forgiven certain men for things that I perceived that they had done against me. And I was like, well, you know, when you work for 440 an hour in room service and you pastor a church of 15 people in a hotel, it's perspective. We're like, you know what? We're just saved by grace and we need to let that go. And I remember when I let that go, that was the breakthrough where I truly forgave these guys. So I would say sometimes when the Lord's got you on a holding pattern, he might want to be bringing something out. We're told for husbands that their prayers don't go anywhere if they're not loving, drawing with their wives with honor and giving them respect, that their prayers hit the ceiling. We're told that in First Peter, lest their prayers be hindered. So there are things that hinder prayer. Husbands not taking care of their wives and loving their wives, asking for things contrary to God's will and his character, but ultimately having bitterness. So I think it's worth noting, just having been through this in my own life the last few weeks, we're just taking inventory through this cruxable that I'm going through right now. I can see where that could be an issue, and I definitely want to let that go. And it's, it applies to all of us, not just me. I'm just one person. What are you saying, Joy? I'm saying if you have unforgiveness in your heart toward anyone, that will hinder your prayers in Jesus' name. And if that's you tonight and the Holy Spirit's speaking to you that, you want to you acknowledge that and you want to let that go. People hurt people. We hurt people and people hurt us. That's the human experience. And the winners in the human experience in Jesus' name are the ones who hurt less people the farther they get down the journey and they forgive the people who have hurt them throughout their journey. And Jesus is saying, hey, we want to believe God for great things, but the greatest thing we can do and let God do in our life is, let, is help us to forgive other people who have wronged us and let that go. Pick it up, verse 27. Then they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered them and said to them, I also ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say it's from heaven, he will say, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men... They feared the people, for all counted John to be a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is similar when Jesus said to the religious leaders, when they said, give us another sign. And he goes, there's another sign that we're going to give you except the sign of Jonah. That is, he was in the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the grave three days and three nights and rise again. What I like about this closing passage and again, having, you know, it's funny teaching Mark because I got a lot of this in Luke on Saturday night, like three, four months ago. So it's similar text, but it's still the angle uh, as the Holy Spirit led Mar- uh, Mark to write his gospel. But Jesus is the final authority. So again, these religious men with like fig trees with no fruit, verse 28, who have rejected him by what authority and who gave you this authority? And it's like if they had believed John, John said, this is the son of God. The father was there when the father said, this is my son who I'm well pleased. And they rejected that. They rejected the witness of John the Baptist, who, of all the human beings that ever lived, was born for the sole purpose, according to scriptures, to point everyone to Jesus, saying, this is the Messiah. And so, like, they were, they were accountable for that. He actually called these guys a brood of vipers, but so did Jesus as well. And 
they're questioning his authority. And then I love how he gives them a question. He goes, okay, I'll, I'll answer your question, uh, 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 but I'm, well, I'm going to ask you a question and answer me. They came back and said, we don't, you know, we don't know. And he goes, well, I'm not going to tell you either. And there's something I like about this, and I got this when I was teaching Luke. There's a tyranny of urgency or manipulation from other people that affects our lives. In other words, there are things that demand our attention which really usurp the place of Christ in our life and what he's doing. Sometimes things come up that distract us, and there's people that come at us, and they're like, what about this and what about that? And there's different things that can happen where they're actually distractions from what God's doing in our life. And learning to say no is really important. And recognize when something is a rabbit trail or a distraction from what God's doing in your life is really important. And sometimes you're like, you feel obligated. I remember early on in the ministry, I felt obligated to respond to every phone call and every, well, it was before email, so every phone call, every letter and all that stuff. And, you know, you want to be professional, right? Like, you, you know, you want to be professional, of course. But as you go forward in ministry, can you imagine Pastor Chuck? Can you imagine Pastor Chuck with a church of 10,000 people? The hate mail he got, the nasty emails, the encouraging words, all different things, like all the phone calls, people trying to sell him stuff. Man, I was on staff for five years, and I can tell you, he, his secretary, Laura Jackson, got all these calls every day, people trying to sell stuff, want Chuck Sear, like, we got this great investment thing here, we got this and that and everything else, and we want to do, like, if Chuck was a slave to the tyranny of the urgent or what other people thought Pastor Chuck should be doing, he would have never done what he was called to do in the Lord. And, and so I use that as an example in our own lives, that it really is about spending time with the Lord and discerning from the Lord what he has for us each and every day. That's why I go back to the beginning of this book in chapter 1 when Jesus got up early before dawn and prayed and sought the, the Father's will. And Peter comes and says, hey, we need to do this and that. And Jesus goes, no, this is what we're going to do because this, this is what we're called to do. And, and that's why that morning devotion and being in tune with the Lord is so important because People are like, well, what about this and what about that? And after a while, I just realized, like, you know, this, this co-worker is not interested in this. This co-worker just wants to have conflict. This, this relative, this is just, they're super manipulative. I, I even recently, you know, you get emails from people like, you know what? This family member's doing this or doing that, and they're saying I don't, I'm not a true Christian because I don't, I don't do all these things they expect me to do or want me to do. It's like, well, you know what? I, like, I just like, hey, reject that. That's not the Lord. Just reject that. You know, but see, people do that. People are manipulated. They push buttons and they say, hey, you know, by what authority and who gave you this authority? And just like, okay, I'll ask you a question, too. Well, I'm not going to tell you. You don't have an answer for me. I don't have an answer for you. Like we can't live happily ever after with everybody. We can't resolve every conflict in the world. We can't fulfill every need on the planet. We're called to do what God has for us each day. There are people that come against us for our faith. There are people that come against us just because they come against us. And the devil throws all kinds of things at us, trying to detract us and get us off track from the, the things that God has for us. And as we're strong in the Lord, and he's the authority over our life, we don't need to defend what God's doing in our life. And we don't need to explain it, per se, necessarily to everybody. We just need to be obedient as best we know how. There's a tyranny of the urgent, and there's a tyranny of manipulation from people who put things in our lives, and put things on us that are not from the Lord. And that's what I, uh, that Jesus just said. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus is like, okay, well, let me explain to you once again from the top, this, how all, no, he's like, no. I'll ask you a question. Answer me. You catch that, how he says that? Capital A. Answer me. Red letters. He took command of it. When people and circumstances come at us that are not accordance with God's will for our life, we need to recognize it take the authority over that and handle that situation properly. Time is the most valuable thing we have, and the devil is very persistent 
against us to distract us with our time, to get us to waste our time and not fulfill our time. And he'll use whatever means he can, manipulative people, worldly distractions, whatever it is. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's going to do the Father's will. And he always does those things to please the Father. So he stayed on point. That's not, he, the whole day, you only got a couple of days left on earth as the, as, as the suffering Savior. The whole day could have been a distraction doing with these guys. This is a distraction. Just dealt with it, stayed on point with the ministries of the day.